so have you ever felt like you don't belong somewhere, right? Like, you know, that feeling when you walk in and you feel like, mm, I don't know if these are my sort of people. Because being biracial, I mean, Sasha, I think you and I have felt this way in various settings. You know, sometimes it's the all white crowds and sometimes it's the Asian affinity groups. And, you know, I think about this happening sometimes in rooms full of men, right? Well, anyway, you know, I think you get the picture. And what we can say is that growing up this way and feeling this way time and again leads to a lot of introspection, learning to tune into our own intuition, to listen to the messages it's trying to tell us, and working hard to stop prioritizing our brains, which if we're honest, can justify and try to explain away a lot and make us feel like we're not enough and need to keep going. And instead of listening to our brains, we're trying to listen to our body's messages instead. And to be honest, it's something we're still working on. Yes, totally. And by the way, anybody who wants to know this, Misasha is the best justifier in the world. If I need to buy anything, you are like, oh no, here's the reasons why. I'm really good at it. Yep. You got the strong brain, my <laughs> friend. But I guess, you know, I don't know if we can say it enough. I think the work that you and I have been doing together, I think what we are saying to you all is that the inner work of self-awareness is really the foundation of being able to do the outer work of tackling things like racism. And it's work that people of all races can be a part of. And that's why we're so grateful that Kim Tai of Ganesh Space was willing to take the time today to speak with us about her experiences as a queer Asian woman, a person who brings mindfulness to her spaces in order to help dismantle that internalized oppression. Little warning that today's episode does drop a few explicit words in it, so mind those ears. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. And we are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Kim, we're so excited to be able to connect with you. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Kim Tai. I'm she, her pronouns. I'm calling in from New York City or Lenape land. And I'm the founder and executive director of Ganesh Space. We're a grassroots community organization. That's our mission is to advance social justice through mindfulness education. And I'm just really thrilled to be here. There's so much like good API energy. <laughs> I'm it. Oh my gosh, we are super excited because as we were talking about before we hit the record button, two people that we love here at the podcast, Dahlia Kenzie and Pia Beck, both mentioned you to us and how much they love you. So obviously we had to have you on the podcast. And I love when we were doing some of our research for this episode that your website bio notes that you were born and raised in Houston, Texas, like Beyonce. So immediately <laughs> it's like amazing. Not sure if y'all have heard of her, but just in case, you know. Maybe once or twice in passing. So can you tell us a little bit about the Kim Tai origin story, you know, being raised in Texas by two parents who are Vietnamese war refugees and all the things that go with that? Well, it was a warm summer day. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, no. So I was um, born and raised in a Western suburb outside of Houston that is Katy, Texas. So one of the things that people may or may not know is Houston is a huge sprawl, right? Metropolitan area. I believe it's the largest geographically metropolitan area in the United States and also incredibly diverse, but the suburb I grew up in wasn't so much, right? I was literally me and like maybe two other Asian households in my high school the whole time. And 
you know, I really kind of grew up with this ingrained feeling of difference. And I don't even think I necessarily had the language to articulate that or understand it. And it's in its complete sort of breadth of me and my identity at the time. And it wasn't until I, I moved to New York for college and really started pursuing a career in storytelling and journalism and just always had the natural instinct to like uplift marginalized voices and, and stories that weren't necessarily told just because that was my lived experience, right? All the time of being either the only woman in the room, the only Asian person in the room, slash person of color, or the only queer person in the room. So kind of straddling all those different intersectional identities. And, you know, I came to New York and I very specifically have this memory. I I was actually retelling this to, to a friend the other day that first time my parents came and visited me, they like said something really progressive, but like whispered it to me, right? <laughs> On the subway. And I was like, mom and dad, it's okay. We like don't need to whisper that here, right? Like, and we laugh, but it's also very telling, right? In this sort of like almost instinctual way that we're like, oh, we have to talk about things like this here. And unfortunately that's the environment that we grew up in. And, and I think, you know, my parents were always very, upfront about like, hey, like racism exists, but like be proud of who you are. And I think I had to deal with my own growth around that as well. But it's really been such a full circle moment of kind of going through my Saturn return, (laughs) going into my now mid to late 30s of being like, oh, wow, like all of this is awesome. Right. And there is such a act of power and resistance and really standing into your full identity and being as authentic as you can be and continuing to navigate, I think, the different pockets of trauma and bias that live with us that we might not even be aware of, right? My mom literally sent me an article yesterday how someone who's running for state representative in Texas right now is like wants to call on a ban for all Chinese students into universities, right? And like, you all didn't hear it, but our eyeballs just grew like eight sizes. Yeah. What? Yeah. So like, it's, you know, it's obviously a Trumper and she was like, you know, oh, they're communist and we can't have communists being in the university. And it's like, you know, and I was like, literally, went through the whole emotional journey of like, okay, I'm feeling this anger, like bubble up, right? And that's kind of where my mindfulness practice and education has really come in to be like, let me acknowledge it, know that this is fucked up, but be able to process it and hold space for it in a way that really can express itself however it needs to. So that way I can take action to keep on living my own damn life, but also like, helping, you know, in whatever ways I can with the work that I do to push back against any of that rhetoric. So that was a very long origin story. It's hopefully that answered all of your questions. I appreciate that. You know, you mentioned something, the comment about whispering certain things, you know, that resonated with me because I've been in airports with my children who see, you know, there's always news streaming or a TV streaming something. They're like, they ask some question that my answer will be very clearly pushing back to societal norms on. And I catch myself moderating how loudly I speak. We're used to changing how we behave in certain areas to keep ourselves safe. 
really is what it comes down to. And the fear that sort of that through line, because there are people in power who can limit who goes to college, who can do it. But you mentioned something really powerful, this idea that you use your practice to acknowledge all of the feelings that come up. What led you to meditation and breath in the first place? And how did that experience change how you saw the world and yourself? Yeah, I mean, it changed everything, right? I think, you know, I grew up loosely Buddhist, right? So when I say loosely, I mean, I saw my parents praying to, you know, Kwanam, the female Bodhisattva every single day, but I didn't really know what that meant, right? And I didn't really practice it myself. I was just kind of a rebellious teenager, right? And wanted to do whatever she wanted to do. But it wasn't until I was at quite a crossroads Like I was going through a divorce, I was looking at the choices I was making in my professional career and really needing support, right? And really needing community. And, you know, I was like, okay, what's this thing that mom and dad did that helped them basically survive a horrendous two and a half years as you know, living under communist rule in Vietnam before they immigrated to America. And it's a really powerful moment where, you know, I was really a little bit a rock bottom and trying to to build my life back up. And my dad was like, here's this prayer that I have that I said every single day when I was in a POW camp for two and a half years, right? And I was like, oh my God, well, first world problems I'm having, but this is awesome, right? Like what a beautiful tool. And I kind of always had that vehicle within my parents and their own personal practice. And, you know, I found myself in spaces and exploring and, you know, I'm a a hashtag Gemini and, you know, I love like learning so much all the time. And so suddenly I was like, oh my God, there's like so many different ways to breathe. And there's so many different ways to sit. And like yoga is not just this thing. And it was really providing me so much support. And before I even knew the science behind it, right? Before I even knew like how it's been essential in the recovery for so many folks who've gone through very traumatic events and really helping regulate our nervous system. So, you know, I went into very dedicated practitioner very quickly and then eventually found myself wanting to learn more and share more of these tools because they were so powerful for me and life saving and changing, right? And really being able to navigate a lot of challenging times for me, just with the breath feels so simple. And, but that's also why it's extraordinary. That's what led me into becoming a yoga teacher, becoming a meditation teacher, eventually, you know, maybe we'll become ordained one day in a Buddhist engaged lineage that I'm studying in. But I think it's very, very powerful. And I can't imagine my life without it and without sharing it. And it's always nice to see other people experience it too and and have such an embodied transformation. I love so much about that story. I mean, starting with the influence, right? And the power that connection with your father and that gift that he gave you and, you know, really tapping into that and that influence completely changed that trajectory of your life. And I think we talk about parents and influence 
on the podcast in various ways, but this is such a powerful example of like something that is so strong coming out of a dark time, right? For both of you and growing up with, you know, a father who's a Japanese immigrant and how Buddhism in our house was very related to the ancestors, right? It was something my father knew a lot about and we, you know, would do all of it when we were in Japan, but growing up, I wasn't curious in the same way that I am now. So I love so much about what you said and that curiosity and that drive coming from that prompt is really, really powerful. So thank you for sharing that. I want to switch gears a little bit. And when you were talking about your origin story, that internal feeling of feeling different and feeling like you're not fitting in because of where you come from. And that's something also that Sarah and I talk a lot about on the podcast being biracial, you don't fit into, you're not white enough, you're not Japanese enough, you know, you're constantly navigating race and identity. And I think that leads sometimes and in various forms to this sort of internalized oppression, right, that we talk about. And I think, and your community organization, Ganesh Space, is really dedicated to creating spaces to dismantle internalized oppression, which I think is fantastic. But I also think we have listeners who are hearing these words like internalized oppression. They're like, what does that really mean? So can you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting when we're talking about my journey towards the practice, like the two things I was looking for was support and community, right? And I found so much support in the tools and the practices, but I didn't necessarily always find the community, right? And I think, you know, I really appreciate y'all sharing and having this podcast and really navigating the biracial identity. And I think one of the things that get lost a lot when it comes to talking about ourselves is that we actually hold so many identities all the time. And I think more often than not, the spaces that we're in only one part of ourselves show up, right? And I was finding myself in a lot of communities where I was trying to heal and work on my well-being that, again, it was very much mirroring what I had experienced in Katy, Texas or in the workplace. I was suddenly, why am I the only person of color here? Or why am I like only queer person here? Or why am I larger than a size eight on my yoga mat, right? It was, and it's interesting, you know, we can use these really, you know, academic terms of internalized oppression, but it basically, to me, is talking about how there's all these different storylines and narratives that are around us and outside of us that really starts penetrating into our like brains, right? Like there's real scientific research that there are like grooves and wiring in our brains that after a while, once you're told you're fat, you're fat, you're fat, or you're different, you're different, you're different, you're gonna eventually believe it yourself, right? And so one of the things that we really work on as a community is using mindfulness education to completely rewrite those narratives that we've been told, right? It's almost reclaiming that story for ourselves that it's like, what does fat even mean, right? Like, can we talk about how race is just a construct for power so that people can like really wield that over each other, right? And it's really cultivating the awareness of each of our individual experiences, 
each of the power and privilege that all of us hold, right? And how we can really keep on working and dismantling from the inside out, right? And I think what we saw so much after the murder of George Floyd and, you know, the influx of so much that it has been in these kind of extremist and violent sort of acts that have happened in the last two years is that everyone's like, I want to go do something. I want to go like, you know, donate and I'm going to change my Instagram square to a black square and do all the things. And like, I'm not judging that. I think that's great. The intention is there, but sometimes things get so lost between intention and actual execution, right? And impact. And, and what we really focus on is getting back to the intention so that your impact doesn't actually create more harm towards yourself or towards others. Because what actually happens after a while is when you start cultivating more awareness of yourself and how what's going on in your mind by simply standing in front of a mirror or being in a room with people that you might feel less than is like, being able to go, oh, I see that, that's wrong, it's bullshit, I need to push back against it, boom, right? And like, just that small act suddenly is like, oh, that's wrong, right? And I like to do these little experiments. And one of the first ones I did was just like really analyzing when I said sorry, right? And as women, we apologize all the time. Like, we remember that Amy Schumer sketch from like years ago, that was like brilliant. And I found myself like defaulting to sorry all the time. And it's been such, even now, like it's still a rewiring instead of like apologizing. I can, what if I thank someone for their patience instead of apologizing that I'm late or apologizing for my presence, right? Because like at the end of the day, when it's something simple like that, you're like, oh, why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because we're continuing to write that same narrative that we're apologizing for our pure presence, right? And so by being able to do something that small, then suddenly it's like, oh, maybe I can totally look at the world in a different way. And that's to me is what mindfulness has provided me the tools for is, is being in the present moment, having my breath to anchor me to do that work of stopping to begin with. We stumbled across a used bookstore slash co-op with my kid. And so the two of us were walking through and the book that called to me in this dark corner was a little book on Buddhism. And I too grew up with a Buddhist mother and we had actually a little shrine in our house growing up to the ancestors. And I grew up watching that tradition and it's something that I've been more interested in exploring. But what you said about the second thing that it provided, community, really struck me as something that that feels important to me as well, because I can envision doing this work on my own, but what I am missing, what I think a lot of people miss, especially after this pandemic, is the sense of community and connection with people. And so I had a couple of questions about the community that you created. I would love to know sort of how Ganesh Space came to be, because Misasha and I felt like we had this kindred spirit when we first met 25 years ago, right? We both, I didn't know a lot of biracial people growing up. And so sometimes when you meet people who experience similar ways of being, you have this like instant understanding without having to explain all of these subtleties. So my understanding of Ganesh space is that it's a shared space with others who've experienced marginalization as we're doing this work. So I would love to hear both how it came to be, but also address sort of the power 
in meeting with people like you and also maybe you know, addressing potential concerns that I've heard from skeptics who are like, well, that sounds like segregation. You know, what about those who are in the majority, which is air quoted? You know, what about white people, heterosexual people, cisgendered people? What role can they play in spaces like this, if at all? Yeah. And so what is the power in those spaces and those communities? I'll work backwards on your question there, Sarah. I think, you know, it's really interesting because I had a lot of initial conversations of like, are we creating more separateness, right, by not allowing all different points of view in a room, right? And very quickly, we all kind of came to the realization that that's not the case. And I think one of the things just to name is that often the folks who are pointing out that it might be separateness or segregation are folks who are already in dominant culture and already hold the power around most rooms and conversations. And the reason why we have separate space is because people who hold one or many marginalized identities don't feel safe to communicate what they want to say in front of folks who might not personally have caused harm to them, but might represent or be activating to them. Right. And so I think one of the things that's really important in anyone's healing process is to meet them where they are. Right. We all hold an Asian identity here. Right. And some of us might feel more comfortable in a mixed space versus others. I think what's important is to honor and to provide those options. Right. And so for, and I don't think it's limited to race either. Right. I think it's, talking about all aspects of what we hold. We really think of the human experience through four different pillars at Ganesh Desh, which is right, race, gender, sexuality, and the body, right? Because there's all these different types of experiences and marginalization that can happen there. So somebody who might be disabled might not be comfortable sharing their own experience in a completely able-bodied, like, community space or group. And that's cool, right? And I think one of the things to acknowledge is that if we can't have that space to heal ourselves, then none of us can heal, right? As a collective, right? And I think the idea of separateness and segregation, now I'm going to get real Buddhist, y'all, is like just totally bullshit, right? Because it's a construct. We're all interconnected. We're all interdependent, right? The way that I'm showing up to this conversation is affecting how y'all are, y'all's experiences in real time and vice versa and any of the listeners afterwards. So I think that's really important. And I think for us, you know, we really are about helping folks socially locate and understanding that also that just because you hold one marginalized identity also doesn't mean that you might not have power and privilege in other ways, right? Like, so as a queer Asian woman, I have privilege around the fact that I'm able-bodied, the fact that I am born in the body that I identify with from a gender perspective, right? And so I think for us, it's really helping educate and help hold space for all parts of us, right? And not only heal individually, but also acknowledge the places where 
we can continue to uplift, right? Use our power and privilege to uplift others. And I think, you know, that's really, honestly, the origin story was the fact that I was tired of feeling different in going to these like really white, rich, affluent spaces around my wellness and well-being, right? And, or it would be like, every first Tuesday of the month would be for BIPOC space. And I'm like, I have more shit I got to deal with than like, is just this one Tuesday, right? So it was really just me selfishly wanting to create space where I could show up completely as myself. And I was like, let's see if people show up. I had no idea. And, you know, very quickly, I think, you know, so many people from very different lived experiences resonated with this idea of showing up as fully and as wholly and as authentically as they could in wanting to be the best version of themselves, not just for themselves, but for all of us, right? And I think at the core and at the heart of our organization, our community, that's what we're about. Thank you so much. First, for that, I think that was one of the best explanations I've heard, really, of why this work needs to be done in different spaces and what the importance of those separate spaces. Because, you know, I think the point that you made about, you know, individual healing so that the collective can heal is something that Sarah and I have been talking about a lot in terms of just solely focused on racism, let's say, and, and how that has hurt all of us, right? And so how how do we heal, right? How do we move if we're really going to try to have this, you know, post-racial society, like how do we get there? And it, it is based on healing the collective, but focusing on individuals who have been marginalized throughout. So I really, really appreciate what you said about that and how much thought and intention went into creating you know, Ganesh space. No, I know we've talked about Ganesh space a little bit, but on your website too, it lists so many other professional identities that you have too. And so I would love to ask you, because it was great. I was like, oh my gosh, Kim does everything. You're a producer, you're a writer, activist. I would love to talk to you about what's the common thread that runs through, because I think as Sarah and I do this work, we can see the common threads that is run through the work that we do together, the work that we've done separately, all the work that we've done leading up to this point. So for you, Kim, what is that common thread? Yeah, for sure. I feel like this is an interview for a job now. <laughs> no. Sorry, I will uh, skip four lines down your resume now. Uh <laughs> Well, but you know, one of the things that I'd love to ask then maybe along these lines is for listeners who say are doing a job X, Y, Z, but they want to pull this same level of consciousness through their different identities because we can show up, but still have the same message and presence in the different things that we do. And I think that energy is what I would love for people to understand is like, you don't just have to, you know look, for example, at anti-racism in your workplace, but not talk about it at home. Like, how do we do that? How do we show up in all these different spaces and know how to express ourselves authentically to make a difference in those spaces? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is going to sound like a very sort of cheesy and Oprah hallmark answer, but I really think like it's being able to cultivate a practice where you can actually listen to yourself. And to what your heart's saying, right? I'm a sap, so I'm going there. But it's true. You know, I think one of, you know, if you're 
all jokes aside, the reason why I was joshing with you a little bit there about my career is because I have lived a lot of lives, right? And one of the things that has been that through line for me is that I really find so much power in storytelling, right? And you can take that in a literal sense as a writer, right? And you can take that from a media sense, right? As my television hat on of representation, of scripting, of reality. And you can take that from a lens of mindfulness, right? Of the stories that we are told and the stories that we want to tell and the stories we tell ourselves, right? And I think ultimately to answer your question, Sarah, like, in the places where I have not found alignment in whichever, you know, professional hats I've worn is when I haven't been able to listen to myself, right? Like, I think I'm not the only person to say when, you know, you might be getting cramps or a shortness of breath, right? Because your stress levels are like really high, right? Like that is your body, like literally, screaming at you that something's not going on. That's right. Right. And I definitely have had moments in my career where I have felt that. Right. And because I haven't listened, suddenly I'm not happy. And then suddenly I realize I'm not really living the values that I want to be putting out into the world. Right. So whether that's an expression of even just calling out your mom over dinner about something that may feel really uncomfortable. But if you don't say it, you're actually doing more harm to yourself, right? In that moment, because you aren't showing up as authentically as possible. And I also want to say all this to say is that it's like hard as shit, right? Like it's not an easy thing, right? Like I am am no way going to pretend like this is an easy road, but it has such long-term benefits, right? Not just in your joy in every day and your sort of peace and tranquility, but also like in your actual physical health. Like you start seeing that benefit. Like my migraine started going away when I started actually like saying stuff that I meant instead or like being loud instead of being quiet, right? We mentioned that. So I think it's something to really note. And if you don't know where to start, like just start with your body because your body is the most advanced technology, you know, screw the iPhone, anything else that we have in this world right now. And I promise you that if you can find ways to develop and listen to your body and what it might be saying, you're going to be on a path to really, really understand whether or not, you know, you're living the life that you truly want to live, I think. As you were speaking, I was thinking about the years that I spent in big law and how I had spent so much time convincing myself that all the stuff I was feeling was like, oh, it's just, you know, it's normal stress or like everyone feels this way or, you know, this is just the cost, right, that we have to pay if we're going to do this work. And so literally for years, and Sarah can attest to that, you know, I would spend all this mental energy justifying how bad I felt to continue to do 
this work. And so a lot of what you said resonated with me. And I wish like my younger self could have heard this like, I don't know, 15 plus years ago and really internalized that instead of all the other, all of what I'd been told about like how I needed to work hard. And this was the sacrifice that you make when, so there's so much. So thank you for sharing that. And you know, you talked about sort of being in that alignment. And so I wanna ask, and I'm gonna ask, cause I, when we were, putting together the questions for this, Sarah's note in the comments was like, I love this question. I'm going to be taking copious notes. So I'm going to let her take notes. It's a selfish question. It is a very selfish question. I'm seeking inspiration. <laughs> I'm going to let her take notes. Yeah. So now that I've teed it up, what do you do for self-care or to find joy? Yeah. I love this question. You know, I recently talked to another yoga teacher, Molly Woolhall, she's great. And, you know, she really has this idea, like she uses this phrase, realistic self-care, which I really, really appreciate because I think it's been built up so much in our contemporary society of feeling, there's like almost this iron, ironic thing that happens, right? It's like, oh my God, I know I need to do self-care, but I don't have time for self-care. So now I feel like shit for not taking care of myself, you know, and it's like the spiral that happens. And and I think it goes back to this idea of just kind of meeting yourself where you are. And honestly, it really depends day to day, right? I remember when I first really got into my mindfulness practice, I was like, so hardcore, which is like, a totally different conversation for another day. But like, you know, I would get mad at myself and I was like, I need to do 25 minutes of sitting meditation and then I need to do a yoga practice for 45 minutes and then read this book. And if I don't do it, then I'm not doing, you know, and it was like, I was like, oh, this is an interesting <laughs> thing to observe that I'm being so rigid and stringent about it. And that was ironically my practice around my practice, right? And, you know, so often people are like, well, I just don't understand the benefit of sitting around and just like recognize, like paying attention to my breath, right? And the whole reason why we do that is because you're actually observing and bringing awareness to how you're reacting in that moment with your breath, right? And being able to say, I'm being really antsy. All I can think about is work, right? I can't seem to like, you know, even focus my attention right now. I think being able to go through that is such a powerful thing. To answer your question, because I'm excited and I'm going around it, is that I sit every day for 10 minutes. It's a very simple practice and I do my prayers and basically my intention setting for the day for myself and, and for the world. And then I think it shows up in different ways. Sometimes I love to do like a basic bitch bath and just soak up those like oils. You know, I have lavender right next to my bed. The theme this year for me is radical rest and what that really means and what that looks like. I have always struggled and had a life to navigate in my career with burnout. And I'm just tired of it, to be quite honest, right? I was like, that makes sense. I'm tired of burnout, right? But and so what that means for me is like making sure I get enough sleep making sure that I'm not, I'm scheduling time in between meetings and not having being back to back and not feeling guilty about it either. Right. And I think that's the radical part of the rest, right. Is like <laughs> holding up those boundaries and knowing that it's okay. And, you know, 
there's so much benefit to getting enough rest. And sometimes it's not always sleep. It's like, also like, how do I feel nourished in this moment? Right. With my tea or the food that I'm taking in or the media that I'm taking in. Right. Like I'm starting to kind of make a rule for myself to, and not checking the news as aggressively as I used to. Right. And kind of have a timer for myself for social now. So that to me is how I'm really looking at self-care this year and is leading with radical rest and, and in every single different facet of how that might affect me and my body. I feel like the basic tenant that allows us to hold those boundaries is that phrase, I am enough. It's like seeing our inherent worth that we are good enough and it's okay for us to rest. And that for me was a very big struggle to internalize last year. And I appreciate you sharing that it continues to be something that we can all work on as we go forward. You mentioned the 10 minute sit that you do. So it was interesting to me to hear that meditation is part of self-care for you. That's one in the same. It seems like it's not a separate thing that is done. It is part of how we can learn about ourselves, nourish ourselves, slow ourselves down. And so for people who are thinking about breathing or incorporating meditation this year, are there any practical tips you have that you can share with us to do it in a sustainable way? I think that's Misasha and I's intention for the year is to really continue to build things out sustainably. So it's not like, let's sit down for four hours a day and try <laughs> tuning it, you know. Totally. That's what I did at the beginning. Don't do that. I mean, here's what I'll say. And I get asked this question a lot is that I think one of the things that people often aren't aware of is that there are actually so many different modalities of mindfulness that you can do, right? And so many different forms of embodied healing that you can participate in. And what I would actually recommend is to like almost go into like an exploration of like what works for you, right? In the same way that you would think about it as someone might be really into CrossFit versus dancing, right? Or swimming, right? There's actually so much out there, right? Like I know for a fact, like, and I've gone through so many different phases where I'm like, oh my God, I'm so connecting with sound healing right now. And so I'm going to do a mantra meditation, or I'm going to listen, you know, to something on YouTube or do the sound bowls. And then there are some days where I just, you know, phases of my life really where I've just wanted quiet. And so I think it's giving yourself the permission to know that you don't necessarily have to do the thing that everyone says you need to do and that there's quite a bit of options out there just to name it. There's so many different branches of yoga to begin with. It's not just like power yoga, let me get on a headstand. Like you can go do restorative yoga, which is literally adult nap time. Like, and it is the best thing ever. So that's the first and foremost, I would say is like really explore and be open and know that there's not one way to do it. And you should listen to what's serving you the most in this moment. And that might change. And then like really find a thing that's, like attainable. A 10 minute sit might be attainable for me in the morning every day, but probably not for my best friend who's pregnant and has a kid like who's like, you know, three years old right now. Right. So figuring out what is that version of mindfulness like for her, it could be maybe she has concentrated time where she's washing the vegetables to prepare for her meal in a way that is done intentionally and consciously and thoughtfully 
everything can be done mindfully, right? So it's more figuring out what are you going to be the most excited about right now? And how can you do it in these short ways and bite-sized ways that might necessarily not mean like carving out concentrated time. It could mean just integrating it into your life. And quite honestly, that's the hashtag goal, right? Is like us really integrating it into our lives, not necessarily saying I went to a Vipassana retreat for 45 days and then you're still an asshole. Like who cares, right? It's kind of figuring out like, The next time that you're in a conference call, recognizing that maybe a coworker hasn't spoken up for a couple of days and you want to call them out, right? How can you be more consciously at work? Lifts little things like that and, and making a commitment to yourself, right? And I really recommend writing it down, putting it somewhere that you can be reminded and don't do it on your phone because like whatever, that's like an abyss, right? Like put it on the wall, behind you, Sarah, that's beautiful, right? Wherever it is that might be inspiring to you that you'll be reminded on the days that you don't feel motivated. I love what you also said about, you know, the intentionality in your day, right? Maybe that washing the vegetables example, because I think that for me, it has been such a struggle. And I've sort of, you know, tried to do mindfulness in different ways, but it has been through the things that I do during the day where I am able to really tap into like connecting breath and body, right? And being very intentional. And for me, that's always through movement because I can sort of, I grew up a dancer and I can shut the brain that, you know, is worrying about every 12 things about my kids and, you know, work and the house and all of those things and just focus on breath and movement. And so it's not been a sort of a separate part of my day, but it's been integrated into it. So I love that very concrete example that you gave because I think that to people who are like, well, I'm just too busy, right? Which is, you know, a separate conversation, but to give them the agency to be like, well, if you just, how do you move when you're doing the things that you do and how are you connecting that way? So I love that. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's just an awareness game always, right? And I think like, Sasha, I love the idea that of you noting breath and body and when that's in alignment and the movement, right? And like, you know, I did something with our community for December, where we asked someone in the room, like, what's bringing you joy right now? And they were like, I've been dancing every day for one song a day. And so we just made a commitment as a community to do that for the rest of the year. And like, just something like that. And it can be with your kids, or it cannot be with your kids. Like, it's like, whatever is gonna actually bring you to the present moment. Like, listen to that and follow that. And if there seems to be nothing that can do that, then, you know, really, I would just recommend slowing down, right? And then like, like, that's what the practice is and and really figuring out, okay, if I take out the things that are making me so taking me out of where I am right now, like, what does that look like? And how can I almost do like an elimination diet? hyperactivity if it feels like you can't formulate something concrete to begin with that's what I always recommend for folks you know I love that well Kim thank you so much for your time can you tell us about any upcoming projects that you have going on and where people can find you 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. And it's been such a pleasure to be in community and talking with y'all. Yeah, so please check out GaneshSpace.org. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up. You know, we have our a talk series called Compassionate Conversations, where we discuss a whole bunch of different topics. Um, our first one is kicking off this month, how to embody social justice. And then we're going to be doing another community event around Black joy to honor Black History Month in February. So all those dates and information are there. It's donation-based. We're still trying to make everything accessible. So I hope everybody comes through and at the very least, just sign up for our newsletter and be in community with us. And, you know, everyone can reach me through the gram I'm there. I tried not to be there as much as I used to be, but I'm there. So (laughs) that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. I really appreciate it. Everyone go check out GaneshSpace.org. And again, thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.